0: hola mi gente what up my people my name is pastor rich cologne i'm the lead pastor here at santos church broadcasting to you live from southwest detroit michigan wherever you're listening from i'm glad that you are listening this podcast is meant to do one of two things and that is either bring you our message content or it's content that we thought would enrich our message content We'll have more information at the end of this episode on how you can get connected with us either in person, online, or on social media. But for now, thanks for listening to this podcast. Gracias para escuchando este podcast. And let's get into it. Vamos. What up, though? Welcome to Santos Church. Thank you so much for joining us uh, at Santos Church. Uh, whether you call Santos Church your home and you come every week in person, or you tune in online via the podcast, or uh, you watch you know the sermons back on YouTube or on santoschurch.org, thank you so much uh, for engaging with the ministry of Santos Church. This morning, we are starting a brand new series. We're in week one of a brand new series that we are calling Becoming Faith, and we're doing it for the entire month of February. It's Black. History Month. We celebrate that uh, here at Santos Church. And so we know that faith has led many, many people uh, throughout history, big important figures in history to do powerful things, right? And a lot of times through school and history books and all this, we hear about the things that they do, but We don't really know that the motive behind a lot of what they do is their faith in Jesus Christ. And so people like Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, people like Dolores Huerta, people like uh, Roberto Clemente, you know, people like—I mean— tons of people, Rosa Parks, all that, like faith has such a monumental place in uh, different justice issues, social justice, reforms, uh, government things, systemic things, and so we are premising this entire series off of the verse in Micah 6, 8, uh, where Micah talks about what the Lord wants and what the Lord wants to see, and essentially in this passage in Micah 6, 8, when you look at it, Micah is uh, really really kind of holding up a standard and uh, casting a judgment on, on the nation, right? And he's saying, listen, you, you're fooling yourself. You think this is what God wants. You think God wants your empty religiosity. You think God wants you to sing another worship song and do another sacrifice and then go home and act like nothing's ever changed. But if you really believe that's what God wants, you're playing yourself. What God really wants, what, and it says, he has told you what is good. He's told you what he wants. And what is it that he wants? He wants us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so this series uh, throughout the the course of February, February, we're looking at that. We're going to break it into pieces. We got uh, do justice this morning. We got love mercy, uh, and we got walk humbly with your God. And then we'll do a week Of wrap up the final week of February. But this morning, we're gonna jump right in to do justice. Do justice. And so, as I started putting this together, and really as I started thinking about this series as a whole, I started thinking about common ground for you and I. Whoever's listening to this, for you and I, we live in a time where things, uh, man, things get hot really quick. And I don't know if it's because of media, social media. I mean, actually, it's because of all those things, right? The culmination and the presence of all of those things. But in the summer of 2020, if you remember, while COVID's raging, numbers are going up. There's talks of a vaccine. Talks of a vaccine coming, maybe coming. How long is it going to take? What's going on? The world. <laughs> In the, the words of Hamilton, the stage play, the world was turned upside down. The world was set on fire, it felt. Things were going crazy. Like I said, COVID, whiling out, death toll numbers ever increasing. But for another reason, actually, the world felt like it was on fire. You may remember, but there was a, a man, a brother named George. And George was caught on camera. Not for the ordinary reasons that someone might be, quote unquote, caught on camera. Actually, he was caught on camera in some footage that is now infamous. It's viral and it's cemented into the minds of millions of people. This footage showing a man, a grown man crying out in pain and horror as a police officer knelt on his neck for what we would eventually find out was a total of nine and a half minutes. Nine and a half minutes. Minutes. That is half of your favorite TV show. A police officer knelt on George's neck. When paramedics arrived on scene, they found a body, but they didn't find a pulse. George was dead. A black man was dead. Hold up, hold up. Another black man was dead. And a cop was responsible. Hold up, wait, wait. Another. Cop was responsible. For most of us in the minority community, this isn't a new thing. It, a matter of fact, it's exhausting. Like we get we get tired of hearing about these things. And although this wasn't a new thing, this one also felt different. In the subsequent weeks, the footage, the pictures, the stories caught traction, and before we knew it, our nation was in an all-out uproar. But it wasn't in an uproar because we all believed so deeply together about the nature of the matter. It wasn't that we all believed together that this was unjust and inhumane and disgusting and despicable. No, we were in an all-out uproar because all at once, our false sense of unity Equality, equity, and Christian moral was exposed. Professing Christians were now clinging more to political rhetoric and nationalism than to heavenly mandates. American laws were quoted and applied more than scripture or God's love. As if America wrote the standards on how justice should look and operate. As if America really, really is God's preferred nation, and since it's God's anointed land, our laws must be proof of God's moving hand. As if God needed to co-sign our documents because we got it right, instead of us collectively as the family of God returning to our senses and submitting to what God says is good, justice. We all want justice, I believe that. I think you believe that. We all want justice. And I think if we if we move past it really quickly, when we talk about justice, we all assume that we all have the same definition of justice. But if that's the case, then what is justice and what enforces? Who enforces justice? Is justice the law? Is it the sum total of laws when they're applied? Do they have to be rightly applied? Who enforces it and who applies it? Is it not the police? Is it not the military? Is it not our court systems? Is it preambles and constitutions and articles or declarations? And if someone does something unjust, but it's not illegal, at least explicitly illegal, then how do we pursue justice? Over the subsequent months and years since, this conversation in the church has moved closer to and then further and further away from this very topic, justice, to the point where now in some church circles, the word justice is treated like a four-letter word. And the dangerous part is if you and I are not careful, we can remove God, literally remove God from the very things in our lives that God intends to touch and work through. In fact, the common theme in scripture is that what you believe about God doesn't just get relegated to your mind. The true test for what you believe, what you claim to believe, is the degree in which it becomes what you live. I'll say that again. The test for what you really believe is the degree in which it becomes what you really live. Justice. So. What is justice, really? In his book, where do we go from here? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I want to say Reverend and doctor. Sometimes we hear Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Sometimes we hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I want to remind you of this, of of the duality of all the layers, more than a duality, right? Like the multifacetedness and genius of who Dr. Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was. He was, he was uh, fully educated. And, and if you read his, his words and his books and you listen to him, I mean, he's a genius in every regard in that aspect. But then he's also a man of God. He reveres and loves Jesus. And that permeated his mission and what God wanted to do through him. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says it like this, Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. I'll read that second part again, that last part again. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read to you a couple of, uh, verses here. We're going to see how we see this played out just so practically and so real in scripture. I think, like I said earlier, a lot of, um, in a lot of circles justice is a four letter word right we don't want to talk about it we'll talk about a lot of other things we'll get into a lot of other politics we'll go on a lot of other unbeaten paths to talk about right but we don't want to talk about this justice social justice reconciliation uh, equity all of that what that really means right we we rushed to address it all <laughs> you know a couple just a couple years ago and now it's almost like we're trying to uh, disguise the elephant in the room all over again and so let me let me read to you the full Micah 6, 8. We're actually going to start in 6, 6, uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8 passage. And then I want to show you a story in scripture that you, you may not have read or read this way or heard this way. And so uh, I just want to share it with you and show you what God's justice looks like. He says, this is good. I want you to do justice. So how does that justice look? We're going to Look at that now. So if you're following along, uh, Micah 6, 6 through 8, we're going to read that first. It says this. What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before God the most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? So it's saying, should we like... If that was translated to, to today, it'd be like, should we go, you know, to another revival? Should we go to another missions conference? Should we uh, throw our money in uh, mindlessly to the offering, right? Should we, n- none of these things are bad in and of themselves, but if we make them the thing, then we've got it wrong. If, and, and especially if we make it the thing and we neglect all these other things that God really calls us to that really have real life implications for other people, right? And so do, do we want more empty religiosity? Do we want more empty going through the motions is what it's saying. And he says this in verse 8, "No, the Lord has told you what is good. He's told you what what he requires of you and it's this: to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God." So instead of trying to wow everybody and woo everybody with how many Bible verses you have memorized, how many books you've read, Again, none of these things are bad in and of themselves. Matter of fact, they're good, but it's it's not either or. It should be both. It should be a culmination of these things that out of our love for God and others, we do get educated. We do spend time in God's presence and God's word. We do prioritize church and and, and all these different things, but then we also do something with it. That's what becoming faith is all about. Like we said earlier in the intro, that the true measure of what you believe is how much it actually becomes what you live. It's not just those things. And so Mike is saying here is like, does God want all that from you? No, he doesn't want all that if it doesn't equate to actual action. So do justice, love mercy and kindness and grace and walk humbly with your God, right? And so let me show you a passage of scripture that actually shows us what God's justice looks like. If you are following along, it's Philemon. Philemon only has one chapter. Um, I'm sorry, I say Philemon. <laughs> what up, Kyle? If you listen back to this, I messed it up again. Philemon. Uh, but Philemon is how you really pronounce it. Philemon's just, I guess, I don't know. It's the, <laughs> it's the hood in me. Philemon. And uh, Philemon chapter one, it's only got one chapter. We are going to start in verse eight. So Philemon is a brother in the faith. Paul is writing this letter to him and Philemon is actually a slave owner. So let me just say this from the beginning. Philemon is totally justified in owning a slave. It was legal at this time in their culture, in their government system. He was totally justified in owning, according to the law, and owning a slave and treating him like property, not like a person, like property if you need me to connect those dots, that's the history of America as well. The laws of our land not too long ago actually said that black men were only three quarters of a man, not even a full man, and permitted people, whites, to own them as property, right? And treat them as property, not as people, right? And when you read the, founding fathers and all that talking about how we have these rights as all men are created equal. They weren't talking about black or brown men. They were talking about white men, right? And and so maybe that, that right there is <laughs> is hard for, for you to have to grapple or wrestle with. We say this in love. I say this in love. But I also won't lie to you. Matter of fact, just by by definition, my job is to tell you the truth. And so I want to tell you the whole truth. And so this is permitted in this time as well. So Philemon owns a slave named Onesimus. And Paul is writing Philemon in relation to this whole situation. Onesimus, the slave of Philemon, has run away. He's escaped probably stealing some stolen something that belonged to Philemon because he's trying to get out he's trying to get away he's trying to give himself a little bit of a head start maybe some money in his pocket so he wronged this dynamic he wronged Philemon in this way and Paul finds out about this somehow Paul comes to encounter Onesimus and Paul now after encountering Onesimus, Onesimus being evangelized by Paul, Paul leads him to faith in Jesus, and now Paul is writing back to Philemon to let him know what he wants to see happen next. And this is what Paul says, starting in verse eight. Actually, we're going to back. We're going to start in verse six. He says this: Paul writing to Philemon, and I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. So Paul's already starting by going, yo, listen, I know how kind you are and how generous you are. I know know you have this in you, right? He's already calling that out of him. And then in verse eight, he says this, because I know how kind and generous you are. That is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand this in the name of Christ because it is the right thing to do. Remember, the law permitted Philemon to do what he was doing. It was justifiable by the law. But Paul says, I could tell you just to do this since you and I believe in Jesus. And if we believe in Jesus, this is the right thing to do. I know what the law says. I know it's justifiable, but this is the right thing to do. But because of our love, I prefer to simply just ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while I was here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much of, the, of use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I'm sending him back to you and with him comes my own heart. I love him. I wanted to keep him here with me while I'm, while I'm in these chains for preaching the good news. And he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. Remember he's saying he he's, he's acknowledging the dynamic here. I know you own him. I know he's your property. I know I need your consent to do this by the law. So I'm, I'm honoring you in that, but I'm also making an appeal to you because faith calls you to something higher than just the law or what the law says you could get away with. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems that you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. Check this out. 16. He is no longer like a slave to you. He's more than a slave. He's a beloved brother especially to me, and now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me to be your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. And then this is cool. In in verse 19, on this letter, if you were reading this, uh, Paul, because he was in jail, he often had one of his like disciples writing this, right? So uh, whether it was Timothy or uh, Luke wrote some, uh, whoever it was writing this for him, Paul at this point took the pen from them and the paper from them and wrote, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, my own writing, I will repay to you. Whatever he owes, I will repay it to you. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. So there would have been a break, a change in handwriting there. And Paul would have endorsed it with his own handwriting, his own signature to show, I am not joking about this. I am writing this myself. You can take this to the bank essentially, right? Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I'm confident as I write this letter that you will do what I've asked. And even more, you'll go above and beyond. And one more thing, please prepare a guest room for me because I'm hoping that the Lord God will answer your prayers and let me return to you. So just to just to give you a little bit of meat here, a little bit of context here. Paul is appealing to him, not by the law, because the law of the land said that he was justified in owning a man as property. But Paul says this, if you believe in Jesus, this man now is not property to you. He is worth so much more. His value is actually in the fact that he's a man. He is created in the image of God, just like you are, just like I am. He is a man and he has value as somebody that God has created and bearing his image. That's where his value comes from. But now even more than that, not only is he a man, but he's your brother. He literally says in here, he's, he's no longer a slave to you. He's a brother to you. I know what the law says. Philemon, I know what you're justified to do. I know that you can make excuses and you could go, I'm not breaking any laws and I'm not doing anything wrong, but because of Jesus and the value that Jesus puts in people and the love that Jesus has for people and the liberation and the value and the worth that Jesus gives to people, the right thing to do is not what's always justifiable. The right thing to do is to give worth and to elevate them. He's not just a slave. He's not property. He's a man. He's a brother. He's family now. And here's what godly justice looks like. And you can, can, can tell me, you can answer this in your own mind if you want, what you think this sounds like, who you think this sounds like. When Paul says this, if, if he has wronged you in any way and he owes you anything, charge it to me, I'll repay it myself. That's justice, God's way. Paul's saying, because I love him and he's my family and he's made in the image of God and he's a man and he's my brother and he's a son to me now. He's not a slave, he's not property, he's my family. And because of that, if If he owes anything to you, if there is anything that he may have done wrong, don't count it against him anymore. Count it against me. And if that sounds foreign to you, if that sounds like too much to you, ask yourself who did that for you? Paul here is simply just mirroring Jesus Christ. When Jesus looks at us and goes, yeah, They they've messed up, they've done wrong, they've they've fractured the relationship between God and men. They've they've messed this up. But don't count it against them. Put it all on me, and I will pay for it all on their behalf because their value and their worth and they're mine. Paul says the same thing of Onesimus. Philemon, don't treat him like this anymore. Treat him better than he deserves. Treat him better than you think he's worth because God says he's worth so much more. And anything you do want to put on him, put it on me instead. I'll pay all of it in his place. That's what godly justice looks like. It doesn't look like us standing on one side or the other, quoting a law, using a law to justify our actions, using a law to give different verbiage to our spite or our bitterness, or our rage, or our hate, or our prejudice. That's not what it looks. Just because it's justifiable doesn't mean it's right. Just because the law says it's right doesn't mean God calls it righteous. We see this all throughout Scripture. You see this all throughout Scripture where Jesus calls us to a higher standard, where it's like, if somebody asks you to walk one mile with them, walk two. Somebody needs the shirt off your back, give them your shirt and your jacket, right? Like go above and beyond. Go the extra mile for people. Do more than, than, than what's required of you. And so when we talk about justice, when we talk about godly justice, we're essentially being called to step outside of our political preference, to step outside of our social economics, to step outside of our comfort zones, to step outside of our nationalism, to step outside of our tribalism, to step outside of whatever it is that would create a wall between us and them, quote unquote, and to stop seeing it like that and instead to see people as family. And when they're family and when they're brothers and sisters in Christ, you elevate them, you ascribe worth to them, and you are willing to do godly justice for them, and that means that you step in and you do what you can do to advocate for them so that they don't have to carry that burden alone. The caveat to this is not that they're right. Lord knows, Lord knows, read, watch, educate yourself. Lord knows that there's so much injustice happening to people who are innocent that don't believe it and their blood cries out. But even for those who are, When we rush to look at the law and weaponize the law against people, almost like an excuse to say, if they broke the law, we are released of the responsibility, responsibility that we have through faith to love them and to give them grace. If we say that they're guilty or if we can plead the case that they are guilty, then somehow that frees us of our obligation to love And to be merciful. By the way, next week is love mercy. But that's not what we see in Jesus. Jesus didn't use the law against us. The law showed us where we were messed up. The law showed us where we deserve something else. And Jesus said, because I love you, you don't get what you deserve. You get grace. You get grace love you get god's justice. And god's justice doesn't look like the world's justice. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King says it like this in his book, where do we go from here? He says there's enforceable obligations that we have as people, like written laws, the laws of the land, the laws of whatever nation, city, state, whatever that you live in, those are enforceable laws. Somebody could come bring those against you and enforce them according to the law, right? But then there's unenforceable obligations. And this is what Dr. Martin Luther King says about that. He says, enforceable obligations are regulated by the codes of society and the vigorous implementation of law enforcement agencies, but unenforceable obligations are beyond the reach of the laws of society. They concern our inner attitudes, expressions of compassion, which law books cannot regulate and jails cannot rectify. Such obligations are met by one's commitment to an inner law, laws that are written on our heart. When we seek to bring justice It'll look different at different times. When the injustice is the oppression of entire people groups, gross demonstrations of violence and the abuse of power, unjust laws and procedures that allow us to throw away entire families by locking them in cages like animals. Slavery in its many forms that are alive and well today, whether it's trafficking humans or unfair laws that Lock away blacks and browns at devastating rates, disproportionate devastating rates. It looks like marching, it looks like voting, it looks like speaking, it looks like unifying our voices to create one amplified voice, drawing attention from those who are in power to change, to make a change. It looks like preaching. It looks like teaching. It looks like loving the way God loves us first. When it's advocating for those in a more personal way, when there's personal injustices that we see happening, smaller scale ones that we know about through relationship and conversation, We support, we unite, we lend our ears and our hearts. We don't listen for the sake of waiting our turn to talk back. We listen for the sake of listening and hearing and helping. We listen with our ears and our hearts and our hands. We let it move us to action. We are present, we are near, and we feel with each other. In every case, it looks like listening, it looks like learning, it looks like laying down our own preconceived notions or biases. It means rising above our politics, it means refusing to settle for justifiable because we know we're really in pursuit of love's justice, God's justice. The kind that Jesus showed and the kind that Paul echoed by saying, these are my people. This is the point I have for you today. Justice means utilizing our own means to advocate, elevate, and amplify for others. It says, this is my family. If they've been wronged, I will stand or kneel. With them. I will hear their pain and use my voice to give voice back to theirs. Whatever they've done wrong, whatever they owe, whatever you required of them, love has moved me to pay. Because love has called my name, to which I have answered. There is no us or them, there is only we. And we will have justice. Hey, thanks again for tuning into the Santos Church Podcast. We hope that you were blessed by what you heard today and that it moves you towards action and greater faith in Jesus. If you'd like to connect with us more, you can find us online at santoschurch.org. And that's also a great place to give if you'd like to contribute to the ministry and our mission here in Southwest Detroit. If you're on Instagram, you can connect with us at Santos Detroit or Facebook, and it's facebook.com santoschurchdetroit Santos Church Detroit. If you find yourself in the Detroit area, we'd love to have you in person Sunday mornings at 11, 1953 Military Street. Either way, hablamos pronto. We'll talk to you soon.